This is Generations. My name is Kevin Swanson. Adam McManus, our host on theworldview.com, our five-minute update that you get on every weekday. He is uh, with me as the co-host on this program. And we are monitoring the U.S. presidential run on the Republican side of things. And it appears that Tim Scott has dropped out. Mike Pence as well, but Nikki Haley hanging in there. And maybe on the rise, of course, at this point, they're all, you know, up against the Trump Meister, and that's a tough deal. Uh, Haley is now placing third in Iowa, second place in New Hampshire, meaning she's she's just under Trump in New Hampshire, and she'd probably do well in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Who's left in this race at this point, Adam? Well, at this point, the candidates include, of course, uh, Donald Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, former South Carolina governor and U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Vivek Ramaswamy, the multimillionaire entrepreneur, Chris Christie, former New Jersey governor, Doug Burgum, North Dakota governor currently, and Asa Hutchison, former governor of Arkansas. Now, the candidates who've dropped out, in addition to Tim Scott and Mike Pence, the South Carolina senator and former vice president, respectively, include Larry Elder, the conservative talk show host who ran against Gavin Newsom for California governor, Will Hurd, who is from my neck of the woods, a Texas state rep, former CIA agent who was pro-abortion, quote-unquote moderate. Perry Johnson, Michigan businessman, uh, spent a lot of his fortune on trying to make inroads into the nomination, but it didn't work. And then Francis Suarez dropped out. He's the Miami mayor who is serving his second term in Florida's second most populous city. It seems that Nikki Haley is somewhat soft on abortion. She was a bit of a disappointment. The Susan B. Anthony pro-life speech that she gave back in April um, basically says, I don't want to judge anyone for being pro-choice. Lines like that just make everybody sense a squishiness about her position on abortion. And, and, and you don't get that from the governor of Florida, do you? No. A striking contrast. You, you know, when yeah. you hear a line like that, you know what my first instinct is to do when I hear about Nikki Haley saying there's room for someone who's pro-choice? I grimace. I literally, my bottom lip goes down where I'm thinking, ooh, that's terrible. <laughs> Where's the conviction? By contrast, to his credit, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the heartbeat bill into law which says if a heartbeat has been detected, typically at the sixth week mark in the development of the child in the womb, then a child can be protected. Literally, that's the earliest stage when anyone even knows they're pregnant anyway. So that really saves upwards of you know 98% of the babies in the womb if that is championed in a given pro-life state like it has been in uh, Florida. To his shame, honestly, To a lot of our pro-lifers' surprise, Donald Trump in that interview on Meet the Press said it was terrible, just terrible, that Ron DeSantis had championed the heartbeat law that protected the baby at six weeks. Apparently, Donald Trump thinks that's too early. I think he's gotten so used to kind of flying by the seat of his pants and saying the first thing that comes to his mind, and, and a lot of times it, it's a good instinct, and he's right on the money because he's he's saying something that's true and something that's right. In this case, he was dead wrong because that baby is worthy of protection, and it's not terrible. It, it's something to be applauded. 
for a man who is through God's appointment, I suppose, in, in that position, but almost singly responsible for having overturned Roe v. Wade through the appointment of three constitution-focused justices, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, which led to the overturning of Roe v. Wade in June of 2022, was perceived to be the pro-lifers champion, to, to be the baby's champion. And so we were all frankly dumbfounded by his meet the press comment that what Ron DeSantis did by signing the heartbeat bill into law was terrible. So in my view, Ron DeSantis has really emerged as the strongest pro-life candidate among the remaining GOP contenders for the presidential nomination. Well, it's difficult to find principled candidates running for top offices of the country. There's so much political maneuvering going on, especially after the reversal of Roe v. Wade and then the failure of the pro-life vote in Ohio, Kentucky, Kansas, Montana. It's been a zero for five, I think, on the pro-life referendums since the reversal of Roe v. Wade last year, meaning that you know, these politicians are going to be trying to figure out where the American public is on the issue, and they're going to adjust their rhetoric and their position accordingly. And for that reason, you know, I I would say, yeah, it's going to be a tough race. It's going to be one of the most interesting races we've had in a very long time, given that we have this controversy surrounding Donald Trump and uh, Kennedy jumping into the race. So this is definitely going to be something of a three-way race. For the top office of the United States of America, and uh, we'll see what happens. I would say on the Ohio election, November 7th, which ultimately resulted in enshrining abortion into the Ohio Constitution, allowing for abortion to take place through the day of birth, negating parental consent, and a host of other problematic developments, that it wasn't so much that the people were chomping at the bit to put abortion into the Constitution, there was purposeful confusion on the ballot between the August ballot initiative and the November one, not to mention the millions upon millions of dollars that left-wing groups and Planned Parenthood and George Soros and, you know, fill in the blank of all the typical leftists, how much money they poured into Ohio. I, I would not be surprised if they did not outspend the pro-lifers two or three to one. I don't know. I'm just speculating. But oftentimes, people that are just trying to hold their head above water and raising their family and going to work and paying the bills, paying attention to the intricacies of a given ballot initiative or a candidate for office sometimes gets put on the back burner and they just go with the instinct from the ad that they most recently heard, the ad that they heard the most. And so, I mean, Ohio elected Governor Mike DeWine. I mean, this is a pro-life governor, yet they voted pro-abortion on this ballot initiative. And I don't think it's because they're demonstrably, as a people in Ohio, pro-abortion. I think they were confused and there was a lot of misinformation. Most typically, the pro-aborts were saying, well, if a woman has a miscarriage or is going through an ectopic pregnancy, she will not be able to have access to medical intervention to 
have that child that has died removed from her body. And so it, it sounded like something that was an overreach and people who believed that lie from the pro-aborts that somehow women who were suffering through miscarriage would not be able to be treated after their child had already died within their womb, they were understandably confused. Well, I guess time will tell, but I think the heart of this nation is rotten to the core. It's a terrible, terrible country. This nation loves to kill babies. They kill them by the tens of millions, and we haven't done anything about it to stop it as a nation. And uh, and I think the people in this country are in worse shape than some of their leaders in this particular case. And so I think it's the churches. If it wasn't for the churches uh, standing up, I think we would have won it if if the churches had stood up and uh, taken the position and admonished their congregation to vote against a radically pro-abortion measure, um, I think we would have won the the election. But uh, the churches are too silent still. And, And this nation is an apostate nation. Its heart is rotten to the core. And there needs to be a repentance amongst the grassroots of this nation. Uh, if there's going to be a turnaround in politics. I guess that's my position. We'll be back with more in just a moment on the Generations Broadcast. Hello, my friends. For the last 15 years, the Generations team has produced a Christian curriculum specifically for families who want to give their children a God-centered, Bible-saturated, biblical worldview-based education. Our commitment is to restore the Christian faith, generational faith in an age where we are losing faith in this country and almost anywhere around the world where Christian children attend secular schools or use secular curriculum and imbibe secular culture. Now, we're not relying on the pre-Christian Greeks for an educational model here. We're not relying on the post-Christian secularists for the education model either. Our curriculum is based in a biblical worldview. We put hundreds of Bible verses in the history books and integrate the truths into the subjects. We want to glorify God on every page of the science books. We immediately integrate knowledge into life application and natural revelation with special revelation. We keep Christ at the very center of the history books with preparing the world for Jesus and taking the world for Jesus. I believe God is calling this generation in this highly secularized age to a radical change in how they disciple their children. Please check out our program for education of your children and grandchildren at www.generations.org. And we are back on Generations. This is Kevin Swanson. Adam McManus with me as well. And in the presidential race, it appears that three candidates are ahead Donald Trump, got the governor from Florida and the ex-governor from South Carolina, and that is Nikki Haley. Now, Nikki Haley was raised in a Sikh family. Vivek Ramaswamy is a Hindu. He's plainly stated, I am not a Christian. Got any clue as to whether Nikki Haley has got any true Christian faith or is she somewhat connected with the uh, heritage of her Sikh family? Well, in September of 1996, she married Michael Haley. Her maiden name was Rondawa, Nikki Rondawa. They celebrated with both Sikh and Methodist ceremonies, interestingly. So that was 1996. According to a conversation she had with David Brody of CBN News, Haley converted to Christianity the following year after her marriage in 1997. 
She and her husband regularly attend the United Methodist Church, although she does attend Sikh services once or twice a year. I mean, if I'm a Christian, I would not attend a Sikh service. That makes me kind of wonder. So in a Christianity Today interview, and I thought this was perhaps telling, when asked whether or not she hopes her her Sikh parents convert to Christianity, Haley responded, and this is about as politically correct as you can get, quote, what I hope is that my parents do what's right for them, end quote. Well, if you believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate and that the only way to heaven is through him, as John 14, 6 clearly articulates, then the answer, even though it might have stepped on her parents' toes, would be, yes, I pray that they come to know Jesus Christ as I have. So that's a little summary. Such developments going on in the major Christian nations around the world or those nations that had some Christian heritage to them. Nikki Haley raised in a Sikh family. Ramaswamy's a Hindu. And don't forget that Humza Yusuf was installed as the first Muslim leader of a Western nation. Yusuf is uh, serving as the first minister in Scotland now. So Scotland's got a Muslim leader at the top office. Great Britain, of course, is led by a Hindu as well, a man by the name of Rishi Sunak. Uh, And friends, there's a great irony here that these nations that once brought Christianity into India and Muslim Sudan and elsewhere in the 18th and 19th centuries, these nations, Scotland and England, now led by Hindus and Muslims. So again, the once Christian nations of Scotland and England, and to some extent America, have opened up the Muslim leadership and Hindu leadership. By the way, four Muslims and three Hindus in the U.S. Congress today uh, we had a Muslim background president of the U- U.S. Uh, for eight years, and we may have a Hindu president soon. Uh, this is what happens to post-Christian nations. They, they tend to prefer Muslims and Hindus to lead them in the post-Christian era of these uh, once-Christian nations. I, I can't think of a nation that was more committed to Christ and more committed to missionary service than Scotland and England and America. The, these were the top missionary-sending nations in the world for nine to 200 years. Think about uh, William Carey and, uh, of course, the, uh, the St. Andrew's Seven that went off to India as well, and I'm going to say about the 1820s, 1830s. These were the first major Protestant missions in India, and to the extent that, what, 2% of India now call themselves Christians, and that came out of the labor of so many Christian missionaries that gave their lives for Jesus to bring the message, the gospel of Jesus to these far-off countries. And now these are the countries that are being led by Hindus and Muslims. Interesting irony, isn't it? It is. It's sad. And I'm glad you're saying it. You're connecting some very interesting dots. We have these data points, but it's helpful when you take a moment and step back and give us the biblical perspective and give us the big picture. I think the question people are asking is why. And I ask the same question, why? Obviously, post-Christian, we get that. These are post-Christian nations, and post-Christian nations are anti-Christian, tend to be. Uh, You know, been there, did that, got the t-shirt, and burned it. Kind of an attitude towards Christianity. (laughs) And burned it. And burned it. Yeah, because, well, these, these nations prefer Muslims and Hindus. Even somebody might favor Muslim jihad over Christianity. They would prefer him over a Christian like Mike Pence. 
There's no rational reason for it, of course, except that there's such bitterness against the Christian church. People who leave the Christian church are usually very bitter against Christians, against the Christian God and against the Christian church. And that bitterness usually doesn't maintain much rationality about it, but turns towards, you know, the most outrageous solutions uh, for, for government today. Now, now, I think we should review the state of the world today. Okay, so where are we today? Given that we cover these news stories practically every day, uh, number one, Hindus are killing Christians in India today. And, and the anti-conversion laws are coming like you would not believe in Nepal and India and Pakistan. And so, so you have these Hindu nations killing Christians, okay? And then you also have Muslims killing Christians by the tens of thousands in Nigeria and, and elsewhere. And Scotland and England then are putting the Muslims and Hindus in power over their own nations. So that's what, that's what constitutes the direction of the world today. Yeah, Hindus are killing head. Christians in India. Muslims are killing Christians in Nigeria and elsewhere. And Scotland and England say, hey, this is a good idea. Let's put Muslims and Hindus in charge of our governments. Mm. Sad. Is that interesting to you? Yeah, tragic, really. Tragic, yeah. Well, you have referred to the notion of religious pluralism, which is kind of the politically correct worldview of today accepted by the elite at all levels, government, academic, media, etc. But really, religious pluralism is more about polytheism, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think the average person would probably say it's not so much that we're, you know, anti-Christian. They would probably say, yeah, but we're just trying to be more pluralistic. You know, we can't we all get along. Yeah. Yeah. We're just going to, you know, it's a cool thing to bring in, you know, Hindus or Muslims or Satan worshipers or some eccentric religious advocate, just bring that into the mix. It'll be fun. You know, it's like a feather in the pluralistic cap. Yeah. I, I, th I think that's it. I think that's where most people are thinking. I, I don't think they, you know, consciously think we are so anti-Christian. We've got to bring these other religions in and prefer them over Christian leaders. Uh, but it assumes, of course, that, pluralism is the right religion that pluralism or polytheism is uh is is the right way to go and of course the idea of polytheism or pluralism is that there are many truths there are many gods with conflicting value systems and so it, it turns into just chaos eventually ethical relativism of course is one of the derivatives here uh what the western nations are drifting into is pluralism and ethical relativism but the end is chaos so i've asked this question before and you probably remember this question uh let's say that you're in charge of the educational program of a nation and you're sitting down and you're saying okay how can our government education system how can our government adopt monotheism polytheism and atheism at the same time and they all get along with each other that's just not possible. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The monotheists, like Muslims, are going to be upset with the polytheists. Uh, the atheists are going to be upset with the monotheists, and the polytheists are certainly not going to get along with the monotheists. Uh, so nobody's going to keep anybody happy. So in the end, it turns out to be uh, a, a disaster, unless, unless you can get everybody to sign up to polytheism. You know, unless you can say, okay, we're all going to be polytheists from now on, or that we worship the state. And I think that's typically what happens to these empires that turn away from God is they turn towards polytheism 
and the worship of the state, and that's uh, that's what these governments are migrating into in in our day. But I I think we should caution people concerning Hinduism. Like every every political system has something of a religious worldview under which it operates, and so you're going to pick your system. You're going to pick your religion. You're going to pick your worldview. You can pick the polytheistic worldview. You can pick the Hindu worldview or the Muslim worldview. Now, now you put Hindus in charge of your governments, and eventually they're going to allow the burning of widows on their husband's pyre and temple prostitution and the rest. Think about this. There are still 400,000 child prostitutes in India. Uh, child prostitution goes Whoa. all the way back to Amy Carmichael, you know, ministering to these little right. girls. Trying to get them out. Uh, in the latter part of the 1800s. You remember Amy Carmichael, don't you? Yes. I talked about her in one of my Sunday school classes. Okay. Yeah. Well, the, what, what was she doing? She was trying to save. She was trying to rescue them. Uh, yeah. These little girls that were being processed into the temple prostitution. That's that's what the Hindus are about. I think people need to understand that there's not really the will to obliterate this child prostitution from India or uh, Sri Lanka or any of these other nations in that area. The Muslim law system also uh, permits and encourages slavery, and that's a no-brainer. They've been doing that for nine to 1,400 years, uh, all the way through history. They still are engaged in the slave trade. The Muslim law system allows for the killing of Christians, the beating of wives. A woman's testimony counts half of a man's testimony. That's the plain reading of the Quran, Surah 2.282. Also, men may marry up to four wives after the religious revolution of the Ayatollah Khomeini, um, a man, a, a girl's marriage age was lowered, you know, to nine years of age. You realize that? That is awful. That was in line with Surah 65, 1 and 4. So again, Surah 434 allows for women's uh, husbands to beat their wives. Um, so again, you know, you want to bring these, these, this form of government into Scotland. I hope that the Scottish are ready to sign up for this. Now, again, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I'm saying that Scotland and England uh, will very likely turn into this in 40 to 50 years from now. Can you imagine that? I mean, you know, now, some us. people want to come back and say, well, yeah, but these people aren't that radical. I, I get it. I get it. But, but you know, you start moving in the direction of a Muslim uh, world and life view, a basically Hindu world and life view, you're going to get something of an ethical system that comes along with it. Does that make sense? I'm, I don't think I'm saying anything that's controversial to, to somebody who's just honest about the religion. Every religion, every worldview has a certain ethical system. And so as you bring these into Scotland and England and America, this is the direction you're going. I think a lot of Americans would be hard pressed to cite some of the specific beliefs of Muslims and Hindus and the very outrageous convictions and behavior that's allowed in Islam, for example, the the uh, marrying of a girl at the age of nine, which is obviously sexual abuse, the, the allowing to beat their wives and a woman's testimony is half as credible as a man's. I mean, a lot of that I don't think is well known among the general populace. Well, it doesn't take too much work to, you know, look up these Quranic passages and, and even go into the websites and see how the uh, religious leaders of the Muslim religion or the Hindu religion will interact with, you know, these theological concepts. And there's a measure of differences that they, 
you know, argue over whether or not you can beat a woman this much or that much, you know, how, how much, or how often might you be allowed to beat your wife? You know, you have these discussions going on, uh, online and, and you can see there are different positions taken, but just, you know, read the Quran yourself and say, well, no, I can see that, you know, this is a certain kind of a worldview that is being conveyed uh, in this, uh, in this document. And uh, so I think people need to be honest about these sorts of things. You know, it's interesting. William Carey uh, did so much uh, in in India. He arrived in November 11th, 1793. This is from England. And uh, it's just a heroic uh, mission work that this man was able to pull off. Eventually, he was able to end the practice of sati, uh, which is, you know, tremendous. He fought polygamy. He fought off the practice of sati, which is the burning of widows on the funeral pyre of their husbands. Uh, He actually gained the monumental victory in that cultural battle with Parliament's Edict of 1829. So thankfully, you know, the Christian government of the UK banned uh, the burning of widows on the pyre of their husband. Now, when the Hindu priests were so upset, they protested against the laws, a violation of their cultural practice. India's commander-in-chief, it was Sir Charles Napier, he responded, he said this, he said, okay, be it so, this burning of widows is your custom. Prepare the funeral pyre. But my nation has also a custom. When men burn women alive, we hang them and confiscate all their property. My carpenters shall therefore erect gibbets on which uh, to hang all concern when the woman is consumed. Let us all act according to our national customs. Wow. Well, that puts it in perspective. Again, again, worldview drives law. And, and friends, it's going to be my worldview or their worldview. You cited a wonderful passage in the transcript you wrote for the newscast uh, this past Tuesday from Deuteronomy 28, where God is warning people not to abandon their faith. And here's the quote, the sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head and you shall be the tail. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. That scripture, Kevin, just came alive as you were contrasting the fact that Scotland and Britain had once championed the cause of Christ and now had elected a Muslim and a Hindu, respectively. That Deuteronomy 28 passage is, is exactly uh, appropriate to reference. I think it does bear application to this particular issue, Adam. Uh, these nations, our nations, our churches, our national churches, you take the Anglican church, you take the Scottish Presbyterian church, these churches have turned away from God. They've turned away from God's law. They have approved child killing. They've approved homosexuality and other forms of sexual perversion. And for that reason, you know, God will turn them over to their enemies. God will have these nations destroyed. And I think that's what's happening economically, socially, politically, geopolitically, and in every other way. 
So the warning is apropos. I mean, what do we do? We, we, we repent. We humble ourselves before God, turn from our wicked ways, cry out for his forgiveness and his deliverance. And uh, I think that's what needs to happen in Scotland, England, and the United States. Uh, this is a solemn warning. Uh, we're coming to the end of Western civilization, my friends. And, uh, but there's never too late to humble ourselves and to repent. And uh, that begins in the churches. Judgment begins in the household of God. And repentance begins in the household of God as well. So let's take this lesson and uh, take it home and take it to our churches as we wrap up this edition of the program. Get a copy of Epoch, the Rise and Fall of the West, a full chronicle of what happened in the decline and the fall of Scotland, England, America, Canada, and every other Western nation. Get a copy of the book Epoch, the Rise and Fall of the West at generations.org. This is Kevin Swanson and Adam McManus inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation. 